You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me again today is my co-host, Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Let me explain that we are recording this in mid-April 2020 during the age of social distancing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Because of that, we are recording over the phone instead of in person, like we would normally do. So this seems a little odd, Cindy. Usually, we're sitting across the kitchen table from each other at the famous Bluefish Boulevard studios when we record. That's right. It's a, it's a little odd, but it seems to be working. It can be a little tricky without our uh, nonverbal cues, but... Yeah, um, so we're... Uh, it sounds a little fuzzy. Hopefully, it's, it seems pretty pretty clear, but hopefully people can hear us okay. I hope so. Yeah, uh, as long as the technology holds out, as long as my internet connection holds out, because it's actually uh, being rooted via Skype into my computer, so hopefully everything everything works like it's supposed to. So this is the second of two episodes of Lighthearted being released this week, both related to the Gayhead Lighthouse on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Have you ever been to Martha's Vineyard, Cindy? No, I actually have never been to Martha's Vineyard. Oh, you should. It's a a great place. I've been there many times over the years as a tourist and to do research and photography. I also lectured at the Vineyard Haven Public Library a few years ago. Uh, Martha's Vineyard is a great destination for anyone who's interested in lighthouses because there are five lighthouses on the island. Uh, That's including Cape Pogue Light, which is on Chappaquiddick, an island that's connected to Martha's Vineyard. And the Martha's Vineyard Museum in Vineyard Haven has the first order Fresnel lens from the Gayhead Lighthouse on display. In the last episode, we heard an interview with Liz Witham and Ken Wentworth, who produced a documentary about Gayhead Lighthouse called Keepers of the Light that's being shown this month on public television stations nationwide. Our guest in this episode is Richard Skidmore, who is the modern-day keeper of Gayhead Lighthouse. Before we tell you more about him, let's tell our listeners a little more history. This time, uh, let's talk about the keepers of Gayhead Light Station, which went into service in 1799. Sure, Jeremy. The first keeper, Ebenezer Skiff, was the first white man to live in the town of Gayhead, which was populated by Wampanoag Indians. Skiff remained at Gayhead for 29 years. He served for a while as a teacher for local children, mostly Gayhead Indians. A mysterious illness took the lives of a keeper and several children in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was decided that the cause was the extreme dampness of the keeper's house. The 1856 keeper's house made of brick was torn down and it was replaced by a wooden house in 1902. The new house was built on a much higher foundation so that it would remain dry. Charles Vanderhoop, a Wampanoag Indian who was born in 1882, became one of the light's most popular keepers. Charles Vanderhoop and his assistant, Max Adequin, probably took one-third of a million visitors to the top of Gayhead Light between 1920 and 1933. Joseph Hindley was the last federally appointed keeper at Gayhead, leaving when the light was fully automated in 1956. Next, we're going to meet the man who has been the modern-day keeper of the light for the past 30 years, Richard Skidmore. Many lighthouse historians, myself included, usually prefer to reserve the word keeper for the government-appointed people who maintained light stations before automation. Although Richard isn't a keeper in the historic sense, he is very much a modern-day keeper 
for all intents and purposes, and I have no trouble referring to him as a lighthouse keeper. Richard is a former book reviewer for the New York Times, and he's also an award-winning experimental filmmaker whose work has been seen on television and in many festivals. His wife, Joan Willisher, a jewelry maker, also helps with the lighthouse duties. I've known Richard for quite a few years. I believe it's over 20 years now. He's been at the Lighthouse to give tours for groups I've brought there several times, and he's always friendly and knowledgeable. I spoke with Richard on April 6th, and let's listen to that conversation now. I am on the phone with Richard Skidmore, the keeper of Gayhead Lighthouse, and we are speaking on April 9th, 2020, and we are in the middle of the uh, stay-at-home orders and the the days of social distancing and all that fun stuff because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And let me ask you, uh, first of all, Richard, how are you doing in these strange days that we're, we're having right now? Well, I'm doing very little because uh, <laughs> yeah. there isn't very much to do at this point uh, in this, you know, the regular seasons of the year, we would be starting to ramp up for the summer season at the Gayhead Light and making sure there were tour guides in place and that uh, any equipment or other things we needed were being lined up and, you know, just the general starting to ramp up, which is not happening because as at this point, we're not going to know until early May uh, what the future of the summer season will be. So it's right. been a, uh, you know, a different, uh, different spring than other springs for sure. Sure. Absolutely. I think a lot of lighthouse organizations are in the same boat right now. It's kind of a, a wait and see attitude. So here, uh, I'm involved with Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse here on the New Hampshire seacoast. And we're, our thinking is pretty much uh, along the same lines of what you just said. Of course, uh, the lighthouse at Gay Head was automated in 1956, and the job of keeper, uh, the position that you're in today, is a, a little different from what it was before automation. But you've been the modern-day keeper for about 30 years now, is that correct? Yeah, exactly 30. Okay. At this point, 1990 is when my wife, Joan Lillisher, and I started as uh, keepers under uh, William Marks, who's that was his name at the time. He changed his name to William, William Waterway. But yeah, it was just a uh, chance meeting. Uh, we were. Uh, do you want to hear about this? I do want to hear what you were. Uh, yeah, I want you to complete that that thought. But by my yeah. count, that thirty years makes you the longest serving keeper in the lighthouse's history. Uh, I believe you just passed the the uh, the stint of the first keeper, Ebenezer Skiff, who was there for 29 years. How does it feel to be the longest-serving keeper in the history of the Gayhead Lighthouse? Well, you know, it's uh, it's been a wonderful thing. Uh, it's something that Joan and I have really appreciated having the um, responsibility of. Uh, for one thing, it's one of the most beautiful properties on Martha's Vineyard, and to have to be there is really a nice thing. And, you know, we've met so many people over the years who have an interest in lighthouses or geology or the Gayhead Cliffs or Wampanoag Indians, and all of that comes to us through the position of lighthouse keeper because of the many visitors that we get during the summer. 
So it's been a, a really great uh, experience. Getting back to what you were saying, could you pick that story up about how you first got involved with the lighthouse 30 years ago? Yeah, 30 years ago, living with my uh, my now wife Joan, who uh, we married about a year later. But yeah, so we were going we were going to, to dinner with a, a friend of ours up at the Aquina shop up in the top of the cliffs, you know, a few hundred yards away from the Gay Head Light. And uh, as we were finishing up, uh, somebody came through the door, and our friend Jay Saper, who we were dining with, said, "Oh, William." And over to the table came William Marks, and uh, we were introduced, and he had some dessert with us. And then as we finished up, he said, would you like to go over to the Gayhead Lighthouse for the sunset? And we were excited about that. Yeah, of course, yes, because there was no way to uh, get into the Gayhead Lighthouse. Uh, Joan had lived in town for you know 20 years before this moment, and I think she'd gotten inside one time, uh, because it used to be that the army would uh, bivouac on the property, and at those times uh, the, they would open the light, and she managed to uh, get a little tour, I think, at one point. So for him to say that was very exciting. We all marched over to the lighthouse and uh, saw the marvelous sunset, and uh, and then as we were turning to go and shaking hands, uh, Joan said to William... I think I should work for you. And he said, oh, no, that's nice. And, you know, we parted ways. And two weeks later, he called up and called Joan and said, what did you mean by that should work for us? And she said, well, I think it should be open to the public and uh, we could help you with that. And she was right because uh, William lived in Katama, which on Martha's Vineyard is about as far away as you can get from Gay Head. It would be more than 20 miles. And um, he had the responsibilities of the Edgartown and East Chop lights as well. So for him, getting up the gay head to the light was a, a bit more of a chore. And he welcomed the idea of local folks, being us and gay head, taking on some duties for him. So it started out fairly informally, and uh, we ended up opening the light on weekends. And that was in 1990. I think the first opening was for Mother's Day uh, that year. And that became a tradition of opening for Mother's Day because the actual season itself, when we do open the light, doesn't happen until Memorial Day and thereafter. So um, that was actually the beginning, Joan's uh, wonderful offer. And uh, we did this as volunteers for uh, at least four years under William. And um, at a certain point, he had put time and effort into the lights and gotten them into shape, which the... Uh, Coast Guard uh, was not wanting to do. And, I mean, I could go into the whole story of how he did what he did because he did major things and saved the gay head light in 1985. But that's how we got to be um, keepers because we met William and it involved from a volunteer thing into a job. William had an organization, The uh, remind me the, the name of the organization. The Vine Vineyard Environmental Research Incorporated, which was very... Uh, was the acronym, and he was a, a water specialist in that he um, could uh, test test water and uh, 
and help people with any kind of water problems. So that was his business at the time. Right. And then uh, for quite a few years, the, the Gayhead Lighthouse w- was under the uh, the care of the the uh, the Martha's Vineyard Museum. Correct. That's right. Um, it, it, I think it was ninety uh, December ninety three or January ninety four. William, for no money or a dollar, gave the lease that he had obtained with the help of Ted Kennedy from the federal government was a 35-year lease on all three lighthouses. And so he handed that lease over to the Dukes County Historical Society, which ultimately became the Martha's Vineyard Museum as we know it today. Mm-hmm. And more recently, the lighthouse uh, is is now owned by the town of Aquina, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you... Were lighthouses at all uh, much of an interest to you before you got involved with the Gayhead Lighthouse? Not specifically. Uh, I didn't have a particular lighthouse interest. I had uh, grown up uh, on the eastern end of Long Island, and I knew Montauk Light. And mm-hmm. the, with my family, would visit that once every two or three years or so. It was an excursion we might do. And oh, actually, and when I was a really young kid. Uh, I mean, like, apparently a year old or something, um, the lighthouse in Hampton Bays, where my parents had a house and my uh, family went back many generations in that town, uh, there was a lighthouse at the Shinnecock, on Shinnecock Bay, and uh, in 1948, the year of my being born, they dynamited it. So my dad had taken me to that, Hmm. Uh, moment he wanted to see it going down and he, t- he was a photographer so he took pictures so I grew up having known that and having seen the picture of the, the, the lighthouse coming down and so that was sort of part of my historical memory but it wasn't you know a major feature in my life so lighthouse, those are my two lighthouse connections before the Gayhead Light. Oh, that's funny. I've seen pictures of that lighthouse uh, coming down. Yep, there's a, a pretty well-known shot of it about 20 degrees off the ground, sort of toppling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting connection there, huh? So you, you one of your first uh, the things, one of the first things you saw in your life was a lighthouse coming down, and in more recent years, you've been involved in in saving a lighthouse from from coming down. So some good symmetry yep. symmetry there. Let's talk about what some of your basic duties, both you and your wife, what are some of your basic duties as keeper? And I know as part of that, you also are in contact with the Coast Guard. Besides working these days with the town of Aquina, you also work with the Coast Guard. Is that, is it, would that be correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, the job evolved, as I say, over time and became an actual job. And um, the I've, I've always uh, interfaced with the Coast Guard. They have a routine of every three months uh, they come to the light, and uh, they do a routine maintenance um, and check the systems and whatever. And when we first started, there was actually, funnily enough, a good deal more, I'll call it electronics, in, in the light than there, there is now. But it used to be that there was an electronic alarm that would go off once you opened the front door of the light, and that uh, alarm went to Woods Hole, and they knew that someone had entered. And unless I called, 
you know, within the next few minutes saying I had just entered, that was a problem. They were going to have to check on, on somebody in their thinking, perhaps breaking into the light. The way I think of my duties and, and Jones with the light is that we're the line of first defense. I mean, aside from the tourism, the seasonal aspect of the work of uh, uh, projecting the history of the light and uh, the maritime history of the island, just uh, protecting the building and the grounds uh, were the main duties because, as you well know, uh, the duties of the of a when the keeper's job was to keep a flame lit, that was a very um, labor-intensive, onerous, you know, 24/7, 365 job. And and the way I look at the change is, you know, keeping a flame lit. When you I look at old photographs of the property. Uh, going back into the 1800s, the earliest ones we have are around 1877. I look at the photos of the property uh, in those times, and uh, at any one point, uh, I could count up to 12 buildings or more on the property, along with the tower itself. And so all of that sort of community of uh, buildings was to support that flame. And so once uh, it was electrified, and the electrification occurred in, in 1952, those buildings started to fall away to the point where it, now there's just a brick tower. And no one would have the sense that there was a need for anything else. But previously, you had to have you had a, two families to uh, operate the, uh, the light because it was an all-night job and the nights were long in the winter and it would take two people. And so they had storage for, for the oil, whale oil to begin with. They had uh, a water cistern to catch water because there was no, um, no source on the property. There would be stables for um, oxen and there would be sheep and goats and chickens and all of those had to be housed and fed and their feed protected with a shed and um, then there was equipment tools and tools there were outhouses there was a huge two-family house um, and it just goes on and on all these buildings garages sheds mm -hmm. and things but all to support a flame and so that to me is is an amazing thing, the amount of energy that it took to keep a flame lit over the course of an evening was a whole major cottage industry. And so you just add electricity and, you know, they, they call it automation. I always loved that. You know, they say, oh, the light was automated. Yeah, it was automated. What that meant was there was a light bulb and an electric motor. And that was automation. But that's what it took to replace, you know, a good deal of um, material. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so my duties in terms of actual physical labor there is so much less than what it took those days. So, you know, I, I keep the glass clean. I, I, I keep the interior in good shape. I repair or hire people to repair what's necessary. And there's brickwork. There's metalwork and there's glass work and there's some uh, woodwork as well. So all of those aspects have to be uh, kept on top of. Things break and uh, 
you know, 15 years ago, I was walking uh, around the upper gallery gallery um, on the balcony level outside, and I started to see a bulge in the brickwork. And I noticed that, and I hadn't noticed it before. And so for the next, over time, the next month or so, I kept looking and checking on that, and it actually seemed to be growing. So I got hold of a uh, historical um, uh, mason and had him take a look, and he said, yep, this is a, a definite problem, and you've got to do something about it very quickly because there's no telling how soon this is going to just break out. Right. So he came and did about $35,000 worth of work and replaced the whole area of the uh, brickwork at that level. And when he took, I was up there working and was taking out the first brick, a whole sheath of bricks just dropped on that. The whole thing was so unstable. Mm. So wow. that was uh, a, a bit of a wake-up call as, as to what was causing that, you know, what would be causing that. And so um, when I had, next had a, a, any kind of brick work, I would call him. And the next time he came, we were looking at, at all the weaknesses in the building. And uh, they determined that the brickwork at the gallery level between the light and the, um, the brownstone, there was a, uh, an extra, what I call a brick collar, placed around the original building. And that was done, we found out through investigation, because in 1860, four years after the building of the tower, there had been a huge uh, hurricane windstorm of some kind, which uh, they notated as being at 220 miles per hour, mm. which I take you know, some exception to, but I take that as meaning that it was the biggest storm they've seen <laughs> in a long time, because why they even noted it was because it had moved the light room a half inch off of the brick. Huh. It had slid it on, on the brick enough that uh, they got extremely worried. Again, the building had only been built four years previously, and the whole purpose was to hold that light in place. So right. that time, they put metal down they put this brick collar around directly beneath the light room and then put metal uh, iron bikes sort of down through it to anchor the light room to the brick. And it was the metal that they put in at that time in 1860 that over the many years had been affected by moisture and had oxidized, rusted, and what that does is jack out the metal like leaves on a book and, it had, and that's what had caused that bulge in the, in the side of the brick, yeah. was that expanding iron. You know, uh, keeping your eye out for that kind of a problem, there were you know, numerous other things with the, with the uh, stairs and the, and the railings and, and different things that would happen in the doorway. I kept front door. The hinges kept not failing. I would go about seven years with a set of hinges, and then I'd have to call in uh, a guy who worked in metal and, and this heavy metal door and uh, he had to unweld the old hinge and then put new hinges back on and after I'd done that twice in seven years I, I went to a catalog uh, that I could find and I, I found hinges that were made for a prison huh. 
And so they were made to hold up those heavy metal doors. So uh, I got those about mm, 15 or more years ago, and I haven't had a problem with hinges since then. Right. <laughs> but uh, it took prison hinges to hold up the lighthouse <laughs> wow. door. So, you know, things like that, you never know uh, what kind of stuff is going to come to uh, to the front uh, in a building that's uh, now 164 years old. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, you are the, the first line of defense uh, for the lighthouse, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's the way I've come to think of it, because uh, we really are, you know, protecting an ancient structure, and it, it takes uh, vigilance uh, to do that. Yeah. But of yeah. course, a, a, a really big part of your duties are to be a tour guide. And, uh, you know, I've brought groups there a number of times over the years, uh, bus tours and, and so forth. And you're always a, a great uh, ambassador uh, for the, the lighthouse when I, I've brought groups there. One uh, thing that I was wondering that I wanted to a- ask you today is, uh, have there been any particularly funny or odd things you've been asked by people over the years? Anything that stands out in your mind? Well, you know, there's not anything that's been really ridiculously funny, but to, to me something that's funny is is that when someone comes up to the light and, uh, you know, I'm not on the front lines anymore, but I know this still happens because I oversee the tours, but um, people would come to the light and they would, uh, you know, you, when you see people, you're greeting them, welcome to Gayhead Light, and uh, there was a, a number of folks over the years who would say, oh, my my great, 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 whatever grandfather was keeper of the light. Right. And I would always, I would always go, oh, really? That, that's great. Who was that? And the answer was, was always Samuel Flanders. Huh. And now Sa- Samuel Flanders was the most colorful uh, keeper in that he you know, prior to, or at least in this period of the 1800s, and he was one of the first keepers, it it was a patronage job, which meant that depending on which party was in power, they got to appoint the lighthouse keeper. Right. So you were only there for the duration of your patronage, really. And Samuel Flanders was in for one period, maybe three or four years, and then he was out. And then his party came back in power, and he was back in there. And but part of his story is that he had at least—I'm not remembering now—whether it was twelve or fifteen children, and um, he would name them after presidents. <laughs> and so he had a kid uh, by the right name for whatever party was in power. For the <laughs> So when someone was coming up and visiting, and they could be officials coming to visit too, he would be able to say, "Oh, here's my son, uh, you know, Lincoln." Uh, if it was the right person to say that, Landers, yeah, that name. So he had enough progeny that um, uh, that they uh, a good number of them ended up living on the island. And uh, so whenever someone, after a certain point, after I've been doing this for like fifteen years or something like that, if someone was to come up to the light and say, "Oh my, my great somebody was that," and I would say Samuel Flanders. <laughs> It's a yes. How did you know? Yeah. But I, I did know, and I was never wrong. <laughs> right, right. It was always Samuel Flanders. There's very few. I don't remember another family ever, you know, coming up and ever saying that uh, they were involved with the light. So 
to me that was funny. That right. Sam was the guy. Yeah, so it wasn't like they were making it up. It was very likely that they really were descendants of uh, Flanders. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, there are still Flanders on Martha's Vineyard. So well, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, let's move up to a few years ago when uh, the the move of the lighthouse, which actually happened in 2015, when it, leading up to that, when it became urgent, when it became really obvious that the lighthouse had to be moved. Again, you're uh, being on the front lines, you're uh, seeing the urgency of that. You were watching the cliff falling away. Can you uh, t- talk a little bit about what that was like being so aware of, uh, you know, what an emergency that was. Uh, I, I remember you telling me, uh, and I, I was was there uh, not that long before the lighthouse was moved, and I, I saw how, how urgent it was. Well, well th- the strange mm-hmm. thing about it is I've been coming to the island since 1969. I'm a yeah. New Yorker. But um, in 69, uh, I visited the Gatehead Light and uh, enjoyed it, and uh, I was there more than once. And, uh, you know, so over the years, I actually I moved here um, as a year-round person in 1988, so, you know, 20 years after my first visit to the Gatehead Light. And so for my period over the next time when I was actually keeper, etc., to me, this was a permanent thing. The, the Gayhead Lighthouse. I mean, you see a lighthouse; it's kind of rooted there. You're not you're not thinking about it moving, and so even though I was keeper and watching out on all things, the erosion of the cliff was such a incremental process that over time I wasn't really paying attention to it. But uh, one day uh, in 2010. I, in April, I walked onto the property and I looked to my left and there's 40 feet of fence missing on the cliff edge. So that was a huge shock and uh, went immediately over, of course, to the edge, look over and down about 20 feet uh, was, was my fence. And, you know, it was a post and rail fence and 40 feet of it was down there. So it was that we'd only lost maybe a foot and a half or two feet at the edge in this particular area. But, of course, it was right where the posts were that went into the ground, and that had probably contributed to the uh, erosion coming. And uh, so, again, that was just a, a big shock. Wow, I've got to really pay, start to pay attention to this. You know, mm-hmm. not only do we have to get a new fence, get the fence up again, got to move a little further back from the edge and keep my eye on it. I got to keep thinking about this. So I started to um, do some investigating with um, some coastal zone planners and uh, engineers and uh, anybody I could snag who might have a, a, some input on this problem because my first thought was, how can I stop this? And it took about six or eight months for me to realize that even though people said, oh, I've got a plan on how to stop it, I would follow the plan down, and then at the end it would go, well, then it erodes to this point, we won't be able to do anything. And so I realized that some of these ideas were like putting, you know, like people could have braces on their teeth, this would be like braces on the cliff. 
and fifteen foot long screws screwed into the cliff, holding fronds of coconut to the uh, cliff mm. edge that was supposed to retard the uh, you know the erosion. And and so when the when it got eroded back past that point, I would have lost more, and then they'd want me to screw in more of these screws with more of these buffers and whatever. But it all ended up with um, it would be a temporary fix. And at a certain point, I realized, well, it would be a temporary fix, and then i lose the ability to move the light because I don't have enough room around the light. So it became a reality that the light was going to have to be moved. So I then started to think, well, who can move the light? And the only name that came up was International Chimney because while other lighthouses had been moved, Masonry structures uh, uh, are a different thing than a wood or metal lighthouse, because although most people sort of have the sense that um, you know bricks are held by mortar, they think of mortar as cement when it's not. It's really just a bed for, uh, to stabilize the bricks. So if a brick lighthouse is tilted and more than three degrees, three, four, five degrees you're going to have slippage and slidage and you're going to lose the integrity of the building. So a brick or a metal, I mean a uh, wood or metal structure, you've got other options on how to move it. So it's a very delicate thing to move a mortar uh, and mortar structure. So they became the only option in the game. And so in 2012, I had them come to the island to look and to verify that they could indeed move the gay head light. Because at that point, we were down to... Yeah, we were down to about 46, 47 feet. The nearest point to the structure was that distance. So they took a look and they said, well, we can do this now, but if it gets down to 37 feet, we'll lose the option to move it because we won't be able to get the heavy equipment around it and we need these 40-foot-long I-beams to get under it and just the um, geometry of it all won't work. So... With that information, I then uh, I'd been keeping the town fathers and daughters, you know, apprised as this was going on. But I was working for the museum, and I was uh, the museum was providing money for paying some of these engineers and other people to examine the situation. So, in 2012, having worked it down, it was got to be moved. These are the people who are going to move it. I had already had a geologist look look at the geology and determined the uh, line of where it should be moved to. And um, so armed with that information, I went to the museum and they said they didn't have the money and couldn't foresee raising the money. So at that point, I went with the museum to the town and we presented it to the selectmen formally. They'd been advised privately by me about it. And um, they alarm went out throughout the town. A woman named Elise Lebovit. Uh, took on and formed a committee, and soon there were two committees, one for raising money and one for uh, the actual physical move of the building uh, to interface with that, and Len Butler became the head of that, and Beverly Wright became the head of the uh, general committee, and then a couple other people started to do the fundraising part, and Soon the whole island became involved, and we got uh, all six towns putting up 
a good deal of money to support the gay headlight because in actuality, the gay headlight is the primary symbol of the island. If you're off-island and you're looking online at Martha's Vineyard, you're going to see pictures of the gay headlight on top of the gaily colored clay cliffs, and mm-hmm. you're going to see pictures of the cottages in Oak Bluffs and probably the Whaling Church, and, and that's Martha's Vineyard to the outside world. So the towns recognized that and were willing to put uh, money uh, towards it, which was a big thing because on this island there are six towns, and some people describe it as um, six islands connected by land because <laughs> every town feels they have their own interest. So this was one of the f- few times when the whole island came together on something. And the state put some money in, but 1,100 individuals put money into it. We raised 3.4 million and were able to move it safely. And there was, you know, a fabulous documentary put together by Nova and it was on PBS. And then uh, that's that's called uh, Operation Lighthouse Rescue. And then uh, Ken uh, Wentworth and Liz Witham did their fine documentary called Keepers of the Gay Head Lights. So. This whole uh, event um, it was is very well documented, and uh, it was an exhilarating thing to see it come together and to see all the energies that uh, came around it, and uh, see it occur uh, in with uh, perfect execution, so that uh, you know there was no damage to the building at all, and. Uh, so it was really a glorious uh, moment uh, for the island and for the light itself. You being so involved in in uh, the whole process yourself, being involved in a, a very uh, you know intricate way yourself with the the whole uh, from the start, preparing for the move and right through the move itself. What was it like being there at the moment the the move was completed? Uh, that had to be pretty incredible. Yeah, the um, the. <laughs> Yeah, you're working your way uh, in the four months up until the move, or yeah, four or five months, all the uh, work that had to uh, occur for the move to happen. And you're working towards this moment, and um, it was, you're profoundly excited, but you're also concerned because, you know, this is, here's this 400 ton structure being picked up out of the earth where it sat for 150 odd years and being trucked along on a train track that was created for the purpose. And at any moment, anything could happen that would destabilize something and an accident could occur. And so it was all very, uh, on tender hooks, you know, the, for the three day period of the move, uh, watching it actually go. But, um, at the moment when it, um, you know, we had a moment where it was being pushed along and then we, it got it stopped right over the exact point it was supposed to be. And we had a pause there and champagne was poured and that was an exultant moment. And then Len Butler, who had been leading for the town, the actual physical move part, uh, got out his, uh, four foot, uh, level and started wanting to make sure that it was completely vertical. And those final manipulations were, were going to be done. And then um, everyone sort of went away and, and was happy that it was in place, and that was great. 
And most people didn't realize that, that it's still the building itself had to be lowered <laughs> because to move it at, at to where it needed to be, it had to be raised to get it to that spot. So it had to be lowered four feet um, once it was over the proper spot and the foundation had been built to meet it and all that. But inside, there's a column in the center of the building that's about 18 inches in diameter, that's a steel column, and that's what supports the uh, interior staircase. The rest of the building is brick, but there are these metal platforms with metal stairs, and this metal center column is what's holding it, holding it up. And so that column had to meet another column that had been built from the bottom in the new foundation. And uh, one of the uh, workers at International Chimney was underneath the building inside. And w when that uh, the 400 tons had to be lowered, those two columns had to meet. And the lower one had to be inserted into the upper one. And there was only like, you know, a 16th. Uh, maybe an eighth of an inch tolerance on this. So you got 400, uh, and so I'm underneath the building with Joe, and we're, uh, and he gives the go ahead, and the, <laughs> and the 400 tons starts to come down, and he's holding the bottom column, and he's, uh, you know, watching this thing coming down, and making sure that the upper column inserts itself around the lower column. And it's all very noisy, and this is all happening. There's a lot of rumbling and stuff going on. And, and I'm watching, and he manages to do it, and then everything stops. And at that moment, that was when, to me, like, heaven and earth met. And that, <laughs> that was the moment of conception, and that, that was what generated the light. <laughs> you know, we've had the light off, you know, for at least six weeks while we were getting all this stuff ready. And it was still like, um, let's see, that was May 30. We didn't relight until August 11th, I think. So it was August 11th that we had a relighting ceremony of, of the light. But for me, that, that moment of that integration of the two parts of the building coming together was, was the high point of the uh, event for me. Wow. And I was <laughs> scared to death being under there with the 400 tons coming down. <laughs> yeah, I can see why. Yeah, but, but, and wow. I had my phone, and I, I, my iPhone, and I was ready to take the thing, and it ran out of battery right at that moment, when, and I never didn't get that moment of the meeting of the heaven and earth, but wow. stuck with me. Uh, as you're describing <laughs> that, I'm just imagine, imagining the feeling. I'm imagining if I was there, my heart would be beating out of my chest. That's just, your description is great. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, that I had put yeah. so much effort into and yeah. I loved. And yet, yet here it was with the potential to crush me to death. <laughs> well, so the, it was a the, strange, strange I, moment. I suppose it if it, uh, well, I, I don't want to th even think that, but I suppose if it had happened, there'd be a certain poetic uh, <laughs> something or other. To, no, I don't even want to. I don't want to go by there. his lighthouse. I don't want to go there. But no. um, anyway. Uh, yeah. let's, let's move, move on. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, read a lot about your filmmaking, but I, unfortunately I've never had a chance to see any of your, your work, but I just want to ask you, is there any overlap between your work as a filmmaker and your work as a lighthouse keeper? I'm just wondering if, has your, uh, has the lighthouse, uh, made it into your filmmaking at all in any way? Yep. In a couple of ways. 
around the time of the the move, um, uh, the whole idea was how we're going to raise all this money. Three point four million seemed like a huge amount of money, and it's a pretty small island. And um, so, what I did was um, document uh, numerous things that were going on with the light as as things were happening. Like a year before the move, there were. At core samples were being taken on the property to determine what was underneath the ground to know if there was enough stability to support the light where we wanted to move it, things like that. So I periodically would, I would always be there when work was going on and I would document. So I ended up uh, doing a screening in 2014, a year before the move, uh, at the uh, Martha's Vineyard Film Center in Vineyard Haven as a fundraiser for for the lighthouse so i was able to use my documentary stuff and some other film work i'd done to get people in there to and it, it became part of the fundraising and that was a great thing to be able to integrate those two uh, uh loves of mine and the other part of where i interface with film is that i used to work in hollywood and um on the peripheral periphery of the film business, but I, I did a bunch of television work out there. But I did work on some feature films in different ways. So what uh, was an unexpected part of the job as Lighthouse Keeper is that it's such a beautiful spot that I've had numerous uh, film production uh, crews and even the U.S. government doing a recruitment film for the Army and different uh, like catalog uh, shoots and things like that. So I'm, I find myself, um, there was recently a big feature film that made, that was made for $16 million and, and grossed like 300 million. And so they wanted to do a, uh, um, a follow-up uh, to it. And uh, I negotiated with them for like three months about what it was going to cost them to come on the property and shoot these three scenes and move this thing so they could get a better shot and all these different arrangements of negotiating and all of that. And I was going to make a substantial amount of money in the tens of thousands for the lighthouse, but... Uh, they ended up at the last minute changing their mind. Yeah. <laughs> but at other times, I've made five or 6000 for the light uh, just for film crews or film work that came through, whether it was an ad or an actual feature film or whatever. Mm. So, yeah, so my background in filmmaking helped me to know how to negotiate and what the value was to a particular level of production. So that what, so if it was a feature film, I, could, I knew I could ask for this much. If it was a commercial, I knew I could ask for this much. If it was, so I was able to use that knowledge in my negotiating with them. Yeah, that's great. Uh, can people see any of your videos on, online? Only my ancient stuff. I did, I did a show, I was a producer on a show called New Wave Theater. That's available on... Um, YouTube, many, uh, we did 50 half hour shows. That was, uh, the era in the early 80s in Los Angeles, and it was punk rock and, uh, new wave music. Ah. And some of the people that we featured on our little show, this is prior to MTV, ended up on Saturday Night Live because we had a big following from the Saturday Night Live crew while we were working in LA. They were out there too. And so they would come to our shoots and, uh, 
So we ended up getting a, a group like Fear on New Wave, uh, from New Wave Theater up to Saturday Night Lives out of this little, you know, they're a little band that's playing in local clubs in L.A. All of a sudden they're nationwide. Same thing with another group called Suburban Lawns. They, <laughs> they did it. But I used to do music videos and... Uh, um, the one I did that most people might know, again, it's, this is old time stuff now, 1983, but um, It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls. Oh. It's a music video <laughs> that, I, wow. that I produced and designed. Holy cow. And I also worked with an artist named Nina Hagen and did a, a yeah. bunch of work for her. And the biggest one for her I did is called New York, New York, New York. But um, this. The stuff I'm doing now is mostly for private clients, so I don't really, I'm not really putting anything up mm-hmm. online. Wow. Well, you learn something yeah. every day. I had no idea you did those, those music videos. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Uh, lately, I've worked with uh, Geraldine Brooks, uh, who Caleb's Crossing was a novel of her. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and they have a uh, thing called book trailers that I knew nothing about. You know what a movie trailer is. There's such a thing as a book trailer, and they do a three- or four-minute video about a book, mm-hmm. and uh, it goes out on television or wherever the person is uh, lecturing or reading their book at a bookstore or something, they might play it. So I've been working uh, for her and and did one, actually, that ended up being seen all over Australia because she's an Australian author and she won the Australian Book Award a few years back and she got hold of me because they wanted a video of, of her receiving the news that she'd won hmm. the uh, National Book Award but this is three months before she'd won it because huh. uh, because uh, and they didn't know if she was going to win but she knew she couldn't be in Australia at the time when the award was getting given right so i got the job of videoing her in her kitchen in on the island here going crikey i can't believe i've won <laughs> and going into this whole uh, you mm. know wonderful feeling of, of, mm. of winning and um and then i sent it off to them in australia and then three months later she did win mm-hmm. so it, it it went out and uh, went all around on the news mm. and on television in australia and national news for that uh, are we supposed that to know that it was filmed three months earlier <laughs> No, no, no one knew. Everyone thought, oh, oh. my God, there well, she is in her home, you know, just getting the news. Okay. I have a, a big question for you here. What, yeah. uh, moving back to the lighthouse, what does the Gayhead Lighthouse mean to the community of Aquina? Well, the gay, the Gayhead Lighthouse has particularly deep meaning for the community because the Wampanoag tribe, which uh, are the original people of this land have a history with the light as well and various townspeople over time were assistant keepers and then when you move into uh 1920 uh charles w vanderhoop became the first wampanoag keeper uh principal keeper of the light and it to date, as far as I know, he is the only Native American keeper of a federal lighthouse. So um, that that's sort of pretty big history for a little tiny town of, you know, currently we've got 450 residents. It, it reflects on both, because when you think of whaling, which is why the lighthouse was built, it was built in response to the increased traffic that whaling was uh, giving to Vineyard Sound you know, reports of up to 80,000 ships a year traveling on that waterway. And so 
as you know, Nantucket requested a lighthouse at Gay Head. It's it, for many people they can they think of uh, that history as a white history because whaling was a white industry and a European derived uh, history, but um, people don't realize that it was the Wampanoags who taught the English and the Europeans whaling. So that history is very intertwined and it's very well articulated through the Gay Head Lighthouse as a point where both sides of that history meet. So you've got the Wampanoag presence and you've got the, the European presence coming together around this lighthouse. And it's, it's, it embodies the entirety of the maritime history of the island. Very well stated. Assuming the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't interfere with the 2020 season, of course, there's a, a good chance it will have some impact on the season. But uh, otherwise, let's, let's just pretend that all that's not happening. Uh, what would the plans be for the Lighthouse this year? When will it or would it be open this coming season? Well, we open every year on Memorial Day weekend. And uh, generally, it's just that weekend and the next weekend and then after that it becomes daily through October 15th so that's normal spread you know early June through October 15th uh, we're open seven days a week from uh, 10 to 4 each day so that's what we're looking to do and uh, hoping to and to some extent I'm sure we will at some point but I'm also sure that the amount of traffic that will be generated this particular season is not going to match other years. People are much more, you know, trepidatious. So I have no idea how it's really going to play out. If people are looking for information on tours, uh, where do they look online? Gayheadlight.org. Uh, we'll give them what they need. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Hmm. What do you enjoy most about your work at the Gayhead Lighthouse? Just being there. It's just, uh, you know, that's the place that thousands of people come every year to go see. But I'm there because I can. Um, I've got the key, and I can be there whenever I want. I'm just a lucky guy. That pretty much sums it up. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any need to add more to that. So, Richard Skidmore, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's just a, a joy to listen to you. Your, your passion for the lighthouse, you know, really, really comes through. You're welcome, Jeremy. Glad to do it. And uh, I think we've known each other more than 20 years at this point. It has to be. Yeah, it's been. I've brought uh, groups there. It seems like uh, every few years, one way or another, I end up uh, bringing groups, whether it's from a cruise ship or from various organizations, bringing a busload of people there. And it's always a pleasure. So thanks for everything you've done over the years. Good luck uh, with the upcoming season. It is is definitely going to be different from the usual season to the uh, to what extent remains to be seen but good luck dealing with the the challenges of this season and again thank you so much i really appreciate it you're welcome jeremy glad to do it all right hope to see you soon thanks again to richard skidmore by the way the native american legend of how martha's vineyard and the gay head cliffs were formed is really interesting the legend concerns a giant named Moship, who lived among the Wampanoag Indians on Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. After walking from Cape Cod, Moship dragged his foot in the mud to separate Martha's Vineyard from the mainland, plowing up the cliffs of Gayhead. 
Moship loved whale meat, so he would catch whales with his hands and then cook them over a fire he made after ripping trees out of the ground. He did this so often that today there are hardly any trees left in the area. To catch the whales, Moship threw stones into the water to step on, and that is how the rocks between the island of Cuddyhunk and the mainland, known as the Devil's Bridge, came to be. Moship loved the Indians who lived near him, and he would share his whale meat with them. One year they gathered all their tobacco and gave it to Moship to show their appreciation. In his great pipe, Moship smoked the tobacco, and then he emptied the ashes into the water, and that is how the island of Nantucket came to be. Another interesting part of Martha's Vineyard history and lore is how the island got its name. Actually, the answer to that question isn't completely clear. The usual explanation is that it was named by the English explorer Bartholomew Gosnold around 1602 for his infant daughter, but there's no evidence to support that. Another possibility is that it was originally known as Martin's Vineyard, maybe after the explorer Martin Pring. By the way, there are no vineyards on Martha's Vineyard. It's believed that there were wild grapevines all over the island when it was first settled, which is where the second half of the island's name comes from. That's all for this episode of Lighthearted. Many thanks to all the members, volunteers, staff, and board members of the United States Lighthouse Society. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the Society or making a donation to support it. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about the USLHS and all it has to offer, including tours, preservation grants, the Lighthouse Passport Program, and the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog, and much more. Thanks to everyone everywhere who works for the preservation of lighthouses and maritime history of any kind. We're all on the same team. And Cindy, thank you so much for joining me again by phone today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as always, thanks for listening and keep, keep a, a good, good light. light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All in my house, I'm gonna let it shine. Oh.